So happy, uh, happy New Year's to everybody. So we, we finished our series last week looking at the emotional life of Jesus, and we have an opportunity this morning to, to reflect on the last year and also to, to consider a vision for what God might have for us in 2018. As a, as a church, our mission statement is to celebrate and display the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we see that primarily worked out in three core values as a church. And those core values are mission, family, and community. And all core values really are, is their, their particular uh, emphases that, that a, a church can give to something. And they're not they're not universal, that is, they're not, they're not you know, uh, scripture and verse out of, out of the Bible, but they're, they're, they're culturally specific. So as a church finds itself in a particular cultural time, in a particular place, there are certain emphases that need to be pushed back against in the culture. And we see that as a church, as mission, family, and community. And we see all three of those three core values working together. They're interdependent upon one another. And so by community, we mean that we live in one of the most individualistic societies in the history of the world. We live in a society where we're told that ultimate human flourishing and human freedom is to be the, 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 the most self-expressive version of yourself uh, as you desire. So to, to, to be who you want to be, to, to, to express yourself exactly how you want to express yourself, is what our culture tells us is human flourishing. Whereas the Bible and, and a lot of other societies around the world say that oftentimes restraint or the good of the community or the good of the whole uh, are, are better than, than one's own self-expression. So we see community as a needed core value in the church. And so this morning, this is a message that I've been thinking about and, and ruminating on for a long time, at least the last several months. And really almost everything I'm going to say today uh, is, is the product of, of conversations that I've either, either had with Chris Taylor or on messages that I've heard from Tim Keller. So I'm indebted to both of them for these thoughts and meditations that we're going to be looking at this morning. I was reflecting that it was almost exactly one year ago today, in fact it was one year ago this week, that Mitch and I first sat down to talk about what a merge could potentially look like. We met between the week of, of Christmas and New Year's, and we had our first joint elder meeting only about 12 days later. Our first joint elder meeting was January 12th, 2017, to consider what a merge might look like. And it's remarkable to think how fast things have happened in the last year, and to reflect on God's goodness towards us as a, as a people in the last year, as, as Severn mentioned this morning we were praying and and one of the prayers of the saints from Lentz was that the doors at Lentz wouldn't close and now by God's grace we have fresh life and and fresh community to to move into that building in just a few short weeks from now so I hope this message this morning is timely I hope it's a message of hope that it brings freedom that it brings power gospel power to your life as we think about and we look at the scriptures, a vision for what Christian community actually is. A vision for what Christian community actually is. 
And we're going to do that really looking at, at, at the idea of, of one word. One word. And it's a word that comes to us in Galatians 5.22, where the fruit of the Spirit is laid out for us. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Patience. And in the, in the authorized version, in the King James Version, the word there for patience is long-suffering. Long-suffering. So we're going to read... Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. This is a place where Paul has turned in the letter to the Romans to give some very practical advice on Christian living. And this is very common for Paul to do. If you've read his letters, you know that he spends the beginning part of his letters oftentimes laying out this beautiful theological doctrine, explaining uh, the mystery of Christ, explaining uh, Christ revealed to us through the ages. And then the second half of his letters, he oftentimes makes it very practical because doctrine is not something that's just ethereal, Doctrine is something that has very practical, on-the-ground implications for our lives. So I'm going to read to us Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. And we'll look at this idea of the Christian community being one of patience and long-suffering. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one for evil, evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've come to us in the Lord Jesus, and you have been exceedingly patient and long-suffering with your people. Help us, Lord, by the Spirit. Would you give us a vision for what's before us? Would you give us a vision for what it would look like for us to be a true church, a Christian community, a church that displayed your beauty and glory? Would you help us, Lord, to be a witness to the watching world around us, Lord? As we think about moving into, and some of us moving back into the lens, neighborhood as a church as a church community and we think about all those apartment complexes going in and we think about all the people that are moving to Portland every day and every month and every year and how they have a vision for why they think they're coming to Portland but yet they're coming Lord there's some that you've prepared to hear the gospel to hear the good news of Jesus that their lives would be radically changed converted that they'd become disciples of the Lord Jesus that they would have be heaven bound have the hope of the future hope of glory 
And Father, you're designing and you're intending for you to use us as a church community to do that. Which means the way that we interact with each other and that we relate to one another is absolutely integral. It's necessary for the proclamation of the gospel. Help us. Help us have a vision for it this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So point one. What is it? What is, what is patience? Here's a simple definition. Going off the Greek word that's used for us in Galatians 5.22 that the authorized version translates as long-suffering. Patience is the ability to bear up under difficulty. It's just, it's simply that. It's the ability to bear up under difficulty. And I suppose we could add, and to do so without giving in to bitterness. And to do so without giving in to bitterness. Look, so often uh, this word is used in reference to relationships. For example, Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 4, he says this. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. See, there's a, there's a connection between bearing with someone and being patient. And to, just to state the obvious, to bear with someone means that there's something to bear. <laughs> okay, so it, it means that Paul's speaking into a situation where there, there is relational difficulty. There's something to be patient about, something to bear with. He's speaking, Paul's always speaking into churches that are dealing with real life situations. Real people that are struggling to live with one another. He'll say almost the exact same thing to the Colossians. Chapter 3, starting at verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And here it comes again. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So there it is again. This close connection between bearing with other people and that meaning to be long-suffering with them. Bearing with people means to be long-suffering with them. That's, of course, because, as we've said, the meaning of patience is to bear up under, under difficulty and to do so without growing bitter. To do so without growing bitter. Now, we could talk about forgiveness. Excuse me. We could talk about patience in a relationship to, to, uh, to, to difficult circumstances, okay? That's another way to talk about patience. We can talk about it in relation to difficult circumstances. You know, we, and we do talk about that way sometimes. We talk about being patient for waiting a new job to open up. Or we talk about being patient in waiting for a suitor to show interest in us. Or being patient in waiting for a diagnosis to come in. And we talk about the ability to bear up under those circumstances. But today we're not going to talk about Patience in terms of difficult circumstances. We're going to talk about patience, not in difficult circumstances, but patience with difficult people. Not difficult circumstances, but difficult people. So considering Romans 12, verses 9 to 21, let's, let's describe these kinds of people. People that require a level of patience to live with. Okay. Just as a reminder, we don't, we don't need patience to deal with people that we like, for the most part. For the most part, people we like 
and, and that, like us, require very little in the way of patience. So let's think about the kinds of people that require patience on a sliding scale, okay? Starting over here. On the one hand, it's a kind of, it's a kind of person that maybe just doesn't like you. Doesn't maybe really like being around you. Uh, they don't understand your humor, your personality, your way of life, whatever it may be. They just, they just don't really like you, and you don't really like them. But then next on the scale, you have people that have actually hurt you. People that have wronged you in some way. They've lied to you. They've let you down. They've betrayed you. They've cheated you. They've impugned your character. They've talked behind your back. They've hurt you in some way. But then on the far end of the scale... Paul gives us some examples here, are those that have actually persecuted you, that have actually persecuted you. These are people that have actively and who are actively trying to harm you. They're seeking to damage you in some way, either physically or maybe it's economically. Maybe they're trying to take down your business. They're trying to, they're trying to show, show, uh, impugn your character, make you a person of disrepute. They're seeking to damage you emotionally. They're persecuting you. So that's the scale. From persecuting to actively hurting and all the way down to just people you just don't really like being around. And all of us have at least two people in mind on that scale. People that have hurt us. People that we just don't like. And some of us have people that are on the far end of the scale. People that have actively tried to hurt us. That have actively tried to take us down actively tried to hurt us emotionally, economically, even physically. So what does this text have to tell us about the way in which we ought to respond to these kinds of people? This text tells us something that is just completely radical. This text tells us something that is completely contrary to any other kind of religion, any other kind of worldview, any other kind of world system that is out there. This text tells us to do something that makes Christianity so completely radical and countercultural. It's what makes Christianity Christianity. It's what makes being a follower of Jesus so challenging and difficult. It's why Jesus can say things to count the cost, to take up your cross daily and follow me. Verse 17 and verse 21. Repay no one for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's remarkable what he's saying in verse 21. He's saying in verse 21 that if you repay evil for evil, you will be overcome with evil. It's an intense saying and teaching here. It's saying that even if you're not the initiator of the evil, but if you repay that evil with evil, you will be overcome by it. And the word overcome here is this, uh, it's an aggressive kind of term. It's a military kind of term. It means to conquer. It means to prevail. It means to overtake. You will be overtaken by the evil that's perpetrated against you if you respond with evil. But to overcome the evil that's been perpetrated against you, to conquer it, 
To prevail over it is to respond with good. It's completely paradoxical. It's completely upside down. Because the knee-jerk reaction, it's so hard because the knee-jerk reaction of every heart is to repay evil with evil. We just do it without thinking. We just naturally react and respond that way. Just to give you a small example. We've all been here. When you're in some kind of group setting or a group conversation, and, and someone in this conversation is somewhere on that sliding scale, okay? And they make some kind of underhanded remark towards you. Or they make some kind of underhanded remark about someone that you like or something that's near and dear to you. And you, you feel it inside of you. And it rises up inside of you like this low-grade kind of, kind of rage. And we wait. We wait for the opportunity to either nail the person back with some kind of verbal assault, or we wait and wish for someone else to do it. And when that happens, the evil has overcome you, and we've become part of the problem. In that moment, we are what's wrong with the world today. In that moment, we are what's wrong with the world today. The only solution... The only way to conquer the evil with good, the only way that you are going to prevail is to forgive. That's what it would mean to be overcoming with good in this circumstance. The only way to be patient, that is the only way to bear up under this difficult situation and to not grow bitter, is to forgive. That's the only way. We all have people like this in our lives. There's people that are, are, are in this church with you. There's people in your own family even. And there's this bitterness in your heart towards them. And the only way to overcome it, the only way to conquer it, the only way to prevail over it, to beat it, to overcome the wrong that they have done to you or the wrong that they have done to someone that you love is to overcome the evil with good and to forgive. It's the only option. It is the only possible way. What will happen though if we don't? What will happen if we don't? A few things. First, it makes us a person that's consumed with this person's failure. Sadly, I've been here. I've had people wrong me and I've been consumed with waiting to see that person fail. Whether it be some underhanded way that I can, I can jab them, whether it be that I could talk behind them behind some, to someone behind their back, or actually just waiting for their, for their endeavor to fail. And it consumes you, and it affects you, because I know, I know I've, if it's affected me personally, it's affected me deeply. Your thoughts are taken up by it, your conversations with other people begin to be tinged with it. And you really can't think about too much else. And it's devastating. It's devastating to you personally. Because the evil is conquering you. In your heart of hearts, you are repaying evil with evil. I remember one time, I think in the last couple of years, Chris said in a sermon that a person that is in a state of unforgiveness is in a prison of their own making. 
They're in a prison of their own making. And they've locked the door shut and they've locked it from the inside. And it's personally devastating. It's so very true. Second thing that happens to us if we can't learn to forgive and can't embrace the freedom of the gospel to forgive is it confuses our own understanding of the gospel. Somewhere this morning, either in Severin's prayer or the catechism, it was mentioned that the nature of the gospel conquers our pride. The nature of the gospel conquers self-righteousness and pride. That's what it does. Because it shows us the reality of who we are. It shows us the reality and the depth of our sin. That our sin, our estrangement from God, our alienation from God was worthy of his righteous wrath and condemnation. That should smite all self-righteousness and pride. Seeing the Son of God on the cross, in your place and on your behalf, should absolutely kill our pride and self-righteousness. We sang it this morning. These two wonders I confess. My worth and my unworthiness. That's the reality of the cross, because the cross says both of them. It says that you are far more wicked than you would ever dare believed. You're unworthy. But you're far more loved than you ever dared hoped. You have worth in the eyes of God. And to begin to let bitterness fester and to let unforgiveness grow in our hearts completely begins to delude the gospel in our lives because it allows us to lick our pride in our own self-righteousness and it's completely contrary to the nature of the gospel. So that's the principle. Overcome evil with good. Forgive, forbear. Just for a moment, before we move on, let me just, just for the sake of clarity, I think it'd be helpful to give us a five-minute aside, three to four to five-minute aside, about places where the Bible tells us to exact justice and not mercy. Because that's what we're talking about. We're saying that it's not our place to give someone in return what they deserve. Instead, we're to show grace and mercy and forgiveness. But I can think of at least four places, four spheres, where the Bible tells us it's right to show justice as the general rule. The first one is the family. Fathers to children. Fathers to children. The Proverbs tells us, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Ephesians 6.4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It would not be right for a father to just continually show mercy as a general rule. It would not be for the good of his children. It would not be ultimately for the good of society for a father to not exact justice as a general rule and require obedience. Second sphere, the state. The state. Paul will just tell us in just a couple verses from now in Romans chapter 13. He'll tell us, if you do wrong, be afraid. He's talking about the Lord's servant. He says, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. It is right as a general rule for judges and police officers to exact justice. A wrong application of this sermon would be for a judge to now go sit on the bench and always offer mercy. A wrong application would be for a police officer to now completely let everyone go every single time. 
Those spheres require justice to be exacted. The second, the third one, the business realm. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. What's happening in the Thessalonian church here is that they have what we call an over-realized eschatology, okay? Which means that they were assuming that Jesus was going to come back in like the next couple days. And so they just stopped working. They just were, they were, they just were, they just became these lazy people. And Paul says, no, 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 no. If that guy's not willing to work, don't let him even eat. Which means that it's right at times to exact justice when the business world. That means that you don't have to show mercy forever when your employees show up late and they don't do their job. And fourth, the church. Fourth, the church. Paul will say to Titus, he says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Jesus will tell the disciples, if anyone, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's right as a general rule to exact justice. So that's my side. But let's look at point two. We looked at what patience and forbearance was. Let's look more practically at how it looks. Or we can think about it like this. We can think about this second point, this more application point, what we could call hindrances to forgiveness. Or another way to think about it, um, we're going to look at what oftentimes shows itself to be forgiveness, but is actually more often than not a false forgiveness, because these certain elements are not in place. The first one. Romans 12, 14 says, bless those, actually, let's go back two verses. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This is pretty much exactly, you could do a a pretty easy comparison to read Romans 12, particularly 9 to 21, and they'll go read the Sermon on the Mount in both Matthew and Luke, and they're almost identical. Paul is just, he's just rephrasing for us the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, I suppose, in Luke 6.28, Jesus says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. So the first way in which forgiveness, long-suffering, forbearance actually looks is it looks by seeking the good, to be a blessing to other people, the person that's wronged you. And then there's that close connection, though, between the way in which we do good to someone oftentimes manifests itself in simply praying for them. That's what Jesus says. In John Stott's commentary, he sees this close connection between seeking the good, seeking the blessing of another person, and prayer. He says in his commentary, there's no better way to express our positive wishes towards our enemy's welfare than to turn them to God in prayer. That's just step one. If this is a challenge for you, if this message and this idea of forbearing and forgiving and seeking to do good is a challenge, just start with seeking to pray for this person. Pray for them. 
give them to God in prayer. Ask that the Lord would bless them and keep them. Ask that God would show favor and mercy to them. Second, what is forgiveness? Well, verse 17, we've already looked at, but let's look at it a little bit more. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You know, there's a remarkable principle in the scriptures as it relates to forgiveness and giving thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all and not repaying evil for evil as we think about forgiveness. And Jesus lays it out for us in Mark chapter 11, verses 24 to 25. It's the most explicit place I know of it in the Bible that's going to elucidate for us what I'm about to tell us. And that is that forgiveness is always a decision before forgiveness is felt. I know that because of what Jesus says. He says, Mark eleven twenty four to 25, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. That word there is a command. It's an imperative. He says, whenever you're standing praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive. He does not say, when you're standing there praying and you finally come to the place where you're emotionally ready, to forgive this person, where there's no longer feelings of bitterness, there's no longer harborings of what they've done to you, you're no longer, the, 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 it's not being replayed in your mind over and over again, then you can forgive. That's just simply not what he says. He says, if you're standing there and you're praying and you have anything against anyone, forgive. Which means that forgiveness is a decision. It is always a decision before it's felt. It's granted before it's felt. And we all have those people in our minds right now as we're listening to this. People that have wronged us. People that have mischaracterizations of us. People who have spread rumors about us. People who have lied to us, who've betrayed us. And Jesus says, forgive. And when that moment when we forgive, what we're doing is we're making the decision to take the injustice upon ourselves. We're no longer going to hold that person accountable for it. So the next time there's the temptation to replay the story in your head again, the next time there's the temptation to say, there she goes again, you're going to say, no. I've made the decision to forgive. Third, This might be the most challenging of them all, what it looks like. Ways in which we can see that we potentially have false forgiveness. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You know what that means, don't you? It means you can't avoid them. I can forgive, we say, but I don't, I, don't have anything to, I don't need to have anything to do with them after that. That's the radical nature of this verse. 
He says, so far as it depends on you. Okay, so they might, they might say, okay, um, uh, this other person doesn't want to live with you and, and doesn't want anything to do with you. You can't control that, he's saying. But what you can control is yourself. And he says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Too often we shroud forgiveness. We shroud unforgiveness. I don't know how to say it. So is that we say we forgive and then we completely remove this person from our life. We don't have to do it. We, we just don't have to, we don't have to deal with them anymore. That's not, unforg- that's, that's not forgiveness. That's unforgiveness. That's a subtle tactic to allow evil overcome evil. It's a subtle tactic to maybe punish this other person. You, they've wronged you and they need to pay somehow so you avoid them. Maybe you're in the controlling place in the relationship and you have the ability to actually push them out. Maybe you're the father of a household and you, you have a certain level of authority that comes with that and you can kind of exclude people. Maybe you're a business owner. Maybe you're a church leader. Maybe you're just an influential person in the church. And you have this subtle ability to push people out. It's a tactic. A tactic to punish the other person. You rob them of your friendship. You rob them of your presence. But the evil is subtly winning. Fourth way that it looks. Fourth way that it looks. Verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. This is basically me just recapitulating point one. Because it's seeking the good of another human being. It's actually proactively seeking the good of the person that's wronged you. And that's just the paradoxical nature of forgiveness. It's the paradoxical nature of the gospel. the paradoxical nature of the Christian life. That by doing so, by actually seeking their good, you're overcoming the evil that they've done to you with good. And this whole heaping coals thing, what in the world? For by doing so, you'll be heaping burning coals on his head. That means something like this. It means something like you're not giving them any excuse to dislike you. It means something like that. You're not giving them any excuse to actually dislike you. Because they've injured you, they've wronged you, they've hurt you, and you're now seeking their good. Because when we go the other way, when we repeat evil for evil, then the the, the perpetrator goes, see, I knew it. I knew he was a hothead. I knew he was a liar. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. And he's, both of you, you're, 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 you're solidified in your position. But seeking their good, actually seeking to bless them, heaps burning coals on their head. Doesn't give them an opportunity to dislike you. And maybe it means even more than that. Maybe it means that it's a, it's a subtle rebuke to them. Maybe it means that it's a rebuke to them. Because if they're a Christian, if they're a disciple, and you're praying for them, you can hope that the Holy Spirit's in them, and they can see the wrong that they've done, and they see you not injuring for injury, 
they can see, okay, okay, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe this person is showing me the goodness of God, is displaying for me the nature of the gospel in in their life and the way that they treat me. It's the only way that you could actually probably help this person. One more thing I want to say. This isn't necessarily how it looks. It's not necessarily getting to the third point. It's just an aside. This is that kind of sermon. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, we, we can, our minds can go one place where we know what that means. We know what that means on the one hand, that God is ultimately the judge. We know that every wrong will be undone, that those who do not repent of their sins and trust in Christ, the full, unadulterated uh, wrath of God is upon them. That every evil will be accounted for either on your head or on Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice in your place and on your behalf. But I think it also means something else that's instructive in the nature of forgiveness. Something else that it means as we, as we learn to be patient with people and forbear with them. It means that at the end of the day, we ultimately don't know. We don't know why people do what they do. We don't, know, we don't know the kind of day they had, the kind of week they had, the kind of month they had, the kind of year they had. We don't know what their childhood was like. We don't know what all the relationships are like. We just simply don't know what's going on in this person's life. We don't know. Maybe that day that they lashed out at us, they lashed out at you. Maybe that day that they, they, they acted so wickedly to you was the worst day of their life. You just don't know. So part of leaving room for the wrath of God is leaving room for God to be God. For God to be judged. For God to be the one that only ultimately knows the hearts of every single human being. Because we don't know. We don't know the hearts of each other. We don't know the hearts of the person sitting next to you. You don't know the heart of the person that's closest. You don't know the heart of your spouse. Only God does. Only God ultimately knows. Leave room for the wrath of God. Leave room for God to be God. For God to ultimately know. Give the benefit of the doubt is another way to put it, I think. Because we don't know. You know, one way I've heard this <laughs> explained is when, um, this is from Tim Keller. He said that uh, when someone else lies to us, we say, liar. <laughs> but then when we're approached in our own life, you go, well, okay, well, you got to understand there was some extenuating circumstances, okay? <laughs> you know, I, there was this going on, there was this going on, there was this going on. And really the truth is probably somewhere in the middle for both of you. Leave room for the wrath of God. So how do we get this? How do we get this? Or let's ask it this way. What would it, what would it take for us to be a church that's like this? For us to be a community of people that really learned to be patient with one another, to be long-suffering with one another, a people that learned what it is to forgive, a people that didn't avoid one another, a people that prayed for each other, a people that actually sought one another's good, and a people that gave the benefit of the doubt. Left room for the wrath of God. I tell you, it'd be radically countercultural to the watching world. If God's going to use us as a people to be on mission, 
and one of the, 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 the final hermeneutic of the gospel, the final determining factor about whether people are going to believe our message or not is the way that we relate to each other. People are going to determine whether this Jesus of Nazareth really suffered, died, and rose from the dead and is alive today, offering the forgiveness of sins for all who repent and trust him. People will believe that message coming out of our mouth based on the testimony of how we live together. That's the truth. Jesus said so. You will know that they are Christians by their... Yeah. The world knows what God is like by looking at God's people. And my friends, we serve a God who is forbearing, who is merciful, who is patient, who is long-suffering. You know, the other day I was listening, I was listening to this story of this man who had been a, been a skeptic his whole life. He'd been a skeptic uh, up until his 50s and 60s. He's a very brilliant man. He was, the, he was a financial advisor, and he managed the portfolios of something like 20 of the top 100 CEOs. He managed the, the portfolios for treasury secretaries. He managed the portfolio for George H.W. Bush. It's a brilliant man. He's a very analytic man. And in his late in his life, in his, in his 60s, he was, he was considering uh, the reality of the resurrection. And he investigated it, and he studied it, and he wanted so deeply to believe that this Jesus was who he said he was. But for him, it all came down to the resurrection. Was Jesus of Nazareth, was he really raised from the dead? And he said he was sitting there one night reading, and he was reading the book of Revelation, and he considered how all the disciples, when Jesus was still alive, he warned them that he, would, he, warned them that he was going to be crucified. He warned them that they would even scatter. And at his crucifixion, they did. They scattered and they left him. But after the resurrection, these disciples went on to themselves die excruciating deaths. In church history, we know that almost all the apostles died excruciating deaths, crucifixions themselves. And so the question this man said, why, why in the world would these disciples who would abandon him on this side of the cross, all they had to do over here was recant and their lives would be pardoned. And he said, it hit him like a ton of bricks. He said, because they knew to their very core that he was still alive. And at that moment, he said, all the light bulbs went on. And the reality of the resurrection and the reality of the Lord Jesus became totally real and true to him. That this God, this wonderful, beautiful, great, powerful God would take on human skin, would live among his people who would reject him and desert him, who would ultimately nail him to a Roman cross and murder him. But then he would rise from the dead. And he would offer forgiveness and newness of life to all his people that betrayed him three days earlier. If that's true, if the mercies of God are true and they're real to you, and they're real to us, then it should move us to be a kind of people who are a forgiving people. Jesus gives us stern words about it in Matthew chapter 6. He says, forgive your trespasses 
the trespasses against you so that your heavenly father will forgive you. And then he says, if you do not forgive the trespasses against you, neither will your father in heaven forgive you. That's not some kind of legalistic way to the gospel. It's simply a litmus test. It's saying, do you, has Jesus actually touched your heart and changed you? Because if he has, if you really understand the mercy of God towards you in Christ, then you will be a forgiving person. My friends, what a great God we serve. That even in our moments of unforgiveness, there is still mercy for us. Even as we struggle to forgive those who've wronged us and have sinned against us, there's mercy even in that for the grace of God to be all the more present and available to us. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to be this kind of people. We pray that we would be a radically forgiving people and that we would learn to overcome evil with good. Help us, Lord. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's just stop for a moment and let's just consider how the Holy Spirit would have us respond. two places we'll just bring our attention this morning as we close this last day of the year that one we read during the sermon and whenever you stand praying if you have anything against anyone forgive so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespass I realize coming to the Lord's table isn't a direct correlation to standing and praying but Paul will also tell us in 1 Corinthians 11, that as we take these elements that we're to examine the body, and what he means there by body is he certainly means yourself, but he also means the body politic of the church. Examine the relationships around you. So I've asked Alex to just play for a few moments here as you stand and prepare to take these elements, and as we close 2017 today, as we enter into a new year, a new chapter as a church, and we seek to live out this vision of being a radical Christian community, just ask yourself, is there someone here that you need to be reconciled with? Is there a forgiveness that needs to be extended? Examine the body. And have the courage to go apologize in ways that you've wronged someone. Alex will play for a few moments and I'll come and uh, close our time and uh, dismiss us to get the elements.
celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We can tangibly express together our faith in Jesus and the hope that we have in him. The table is open to all who have repented of their sins and baptized. If that describes you and you're visiting us for another church, you're welcome to partake of the elements with us. You take the elements, come up row by row and take them back to your seat and we'll partake corporately here in a few moments.